Welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. Let's begin where we can't escape. Let's begin with Logos. Now I would say that this openness, this being in the world, this referring to the world, to objects in the world, what I would like to call self-transcendence, this is disappearing as soon as you project a human being into a lower dimension than its own dimension. The point of the V goes up to the, to the nuclear explosion that created it. Uh, tell, tell me this, Dr. Oppenheimer. Uh, do you ever become frightened at what you're finding out here in this area that can't be measured in either time or space? I, you see, that's a real point. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts. Open up your hearts to Athens and Jerusalem. The infants of our culture, united, independent, polarized, and even bloody. Athens, the cradle of wisdom and rationality. Jerusalem, the cradle of faith and spirituality. In this podcast, we look at reunion. Could reason be more than modern secular skepticism? And could spirituality be more than belief? So, welcome to this third episode of Athens in Jerusalem. Last time we discussed the one and the many. Mostly we focus on Athens. I'm just wondering, try to focus more on Jerusalem this time. And maybe we should start with this question, is, is it? Is it possible to listen to Logos and experience God? What do you think, Stephen? Uh, Huge huge question, of course. Um, One thing I would start with is when we talk about God or or Logos, we should admit up front that we don't know what we're talking about, you know, in the sense that we, we don't have any direct access to this thing to which we have ascribed, you know, to which we have assigned this noun that has this grammatical position in our language. And then we all go around talking as though we know what we're talking about when we talk about God or logos. And maybe for the purposes of this conversation, we'll, we'll kind of talk about God and logos as, as, as equivalent ideas. Um, But the reality is we also don't have direct access to, you know, the laws of physics either. And so, uh, so there are a lot of things we don't have direct access to. So we have to talk about it through inference or indirectly. But the thing with ideas about God uh, or logos, these you know metaphysical absolutes, um, is that there are certain individuals in history who come along and say, "I know. Uh, I know this thing for sure." Uh, you're going to have to trust me, uh, and I'm, I'm referring to the prophets, but also, you know, lots of individuals, you know, besides prophets, also have a sense of absolute certainty that I know this thing is true. So, what about those of us who don't have that sense of inner certainty? You know, what what can we do about it? What's what's the what's the res- what's the response to that? Given that we have no direct access to it. Um, and I can imagine there's two basic responses to it. One would be, 
we'll look for some kind of indirect evidence in the world, in our own lives, in our in in our collective uh, experience as as human beings. Uh, and the other possibility would be try out the idea, try it on for size, uh, and see if in the doing, if you know, in in the acting through this idea, acting as though that idea were true, it leads somewhere unexpected, somewhere that otherwise we wouldn't have guessed if we were just kind of sitting in our armchair thinking about the idea in a more kind of abstract way. Um, and so so that's that's what I think about initially when I think about, you know, how do we even address this question of you know, the metaphysical absolute of things, which may or may not, you know, provide a useful point of unity for the human race, because that would be one of the of the directions we could go. And there's a lot of directions, obviously, we can take this conversation. One direction would be to say, well, what is the indirect evidence or is there indirect evidence to this claim of there being a single unifying reality behind the world of appearances? Can we see it? Is it written in the stars? You know, is it graven in the rocks? You know, is it in some way uh, 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 visible to us in, in a tangible way at, at, from which we can infer that there is this underlying reality of things? But then secondly, in terms of you know trying out the idea, we can look at it in terms of how does this affect us personally? You know, what does it mean when we orient ourselves to a divine reality, a logos or a god? Uh, what does it mean when we worship something? What does it mean to worship something? I hope we can have a side, uh, at least a, a piece of our conversation uh, about that, because uh, there isn't, you know, sort of consensus agreement even on what it means to, to to worship something. And then thirdly, looking at this idea from the perspective of not not individually, but collectively, you know, what is the pragmatic benefit or consequence of uh, aligning ourselves collectively, societally, around, say, a single idea? Um, we can talk about, for, for instance, whether a polytheistic kind of orientation is more or less likely to produce, you know, a large unity across, say, a civilization or across, say, uh, like the global civilization, which, which is emerging. Is it pragmatically easier to establish that on a, say, polytheistic foundation or on a monotheistic foundation or on an atheistic foundation? That's another really interesting direction we, yes. we can take things. But so, yeah. so, so maybe we, we should try to also... I think, first of all, this question about how to experience something divine is, is I think that's very interesting. And, and I think you said is that we, we, we could do it by experiences or we could do it by practices. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think is that there is maybe a third way, and, and that is the, uh, our inner self or our uh, ability to be to think logical mm -hmm. about it all i mean uh, uh, all and uh, and this is uh, i think was so, and uh, so if if i should try to say that we if if we should have this possibility of listening to the divine true logos that is to to actually start with our inner self and trying to 
just listening what what our own soul tells us mm-hmm. and uh, uh, of course and this is a, again platonic but uh, platonistic maybe Socrates, one of the reasons why he died, or he had to, he was judged to die, he offending the, the gods. Mm-hmm. And often we, we talk about this, we, we, we went from mythos into logos with Socrates and the platonic uh, dialogues. But that doesn't mean that we went from believing in gods to not believing in gods. On the contrary, Plato and Socrates still believed in God, but they believed in what they understood as a logical divinity. And that was divinity that was eternal, unchangeable, perfect. All Mm -hmm. these entities that we connect to, uh, what they connect to to Logos, of course, and also to, to what is good and what is beauty. So, so, so they, so, so I would say that they, it, it, their logical experience or their logical thinking on this idea of God made them into monotheists. So they turned everything from a pluralistic understanding of gods that was normal in the Athenic society into a monotheistic understanding of, of the of God. So. Mm-hmm. So that's my understanding of this. How, how, what do you think? Could, could I? So, yeah, I, I, if I could uh, sort of um, further complicate a little bit this issue or, or bring in another um, sort of dimension, because I think that this issue has both a sort of a more philosophical, metaphysical, but also a, a strong psychological aspect to it. I've, I've become very aware of this because... I am originally from the Middle East, but I have grown up and, and lived most of my life in Scandinavia. And and in these two cultural domains, there's a very different kind of attitude towards authority. Now, you see, as, 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 as long as something superhuman is just like, you know, that there's this greatness of the universe or even some sort of a universal mind and as long as it's just like it's there um and and i think for instance very often scandinavian people when they go out to nature they they somehow experience something that we could call spiritual or metaphysical you know the greatness majesty beauty of nature but it doesn't in any way bear on their personal lives it's just like an awareness of you know there's something greater than me but it doesn't have any as it were authoritative um, implications that it would be telling me to do live in a certain way or to do a certain thing and soon as that kind of a thing you know because uh, Stephen was referring to the prophets I mean these prophets they don't just come up uh, they don't just come with with some sort of a message of you know the a metaphysical message they come also with a very pragmatic and and uh, both social and individual message of what's right and wrong what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing and it's that sense of as it were authority over my personal life that i i think that especially in in the nordic countries but i think more and more in the in the sort of secularizing world people find it difficult to to um, accept and then there are other cultural domains uh, or, or areas 
where on the contrary, people are always seeking to, to make somebody or something the authority in their lives. And, you know, they, they don't want to make these decisions themselves. They, they love to have, you know, they, they are very prone to, to elevate even a human being, a normal human being, to, to someone that, you know, you tell me what's right and wrong and I will um, follow it. And I, I think somewhere here we have to, to perhaps uh, find, a, find a solution. And, and one thing, uh, if I may finally say about this matter of authority is that, that to me it's very interesting that in the realm of science, we even secularized people much more readily accept authority. So, for instance, as a student, when you go to university, as long as as, far, as long as you've uh, accepted that, for instance, someone is a professor who really knows their stuff, so you go there, and this professor is saying things that may be counterintuitive to you. But your first reaction is not that, you know, this is nonsense or why should I learn this? I don't even understand it or I don't like it or it's, it, it goes against my my intuition. On the contrary, you say, OK, obviously he knows I don't. So let me try to understand why it is like this. So in the realm of science, we're willing to assume this more humble attitude and, and even, um, you know, accept things that initially are challenging to our minds but when it comes to something metaphysical soon as there is some sort of a message that says you know do this or don't do this this is right or that is wrong that does not uh, sort of harmonize with our psychological or intellectual um, tastes then we are prone to say no I mean like why should we why should there be anyone telling me what is right and wrong so I, I think I think there is this psychological aspect to the issue of um God or logos uh, that that we need to take into into account. Mm. It's more yeah. than just an awareness. Yeah, I think this question of, of authority is so is, is so crucially in the background of all of our conversations about this topic, especially as it is one of the major threads in the. In, in Western culture and Western thought over the last few centuries, you know, we can even perhaps trace this struggle about authority uh, back around 400 years, let's say, to the to the Enlightenment, um, which can be thought of. It, it can be described in different ways, but one very compelling way that I've heard the Enlightenment described is it was a time in which we we let go of the of this. Uh, of this unthinking obedience to received authority. And we're freed from that kind of tyranny of received authorities and replaced it by a reliance on the mind, uh, a reliance on uh, the individual's ability to work things out for themselves. And so there was a, a succession of authorities that you know, from the 1600s on, you know, well, 1500s, if we sort of include Copernicus and the and the and the initial uh, this initial um, sort of discovery that that the universe as it really is uh, is not necessarily the way the universe the way it was described in the books of Ptolemy and in the ancient Greeks and so forth. So the the scientific authorities were perhaps the first to fall. But then in quick succession, you have this, this dethroning of other authority figures, you know, the divine right of kings, 
you know, who gets to decide who's in charge and who gets to say that you can't question the authority of the king. Uh, and this leads to all sorts of political revolutions and, and modern democracies. Um, who gets to decide what you can and can't do in matters of religion? Uh, the authority of the prophet, the authority of the church, the authority of the clergy all goes as well. And so we're left in the present day with this very pervasive feature of Western, the Western ethos, you know, the, the, the Western way of approaching the, the world, which is skepticism towards anyone who comes along and says, I'm an authority in this. And, but as you point out, Kamran, when it comes to everyday life, there are certain authorities that we accept, at least provisionally, you know, as students in, you know, studying certain subjects, we accept at least initially the authority of our professors, the authority of the textbooks. You know, if we just questioned all authorities at all times, then, then all order would dissolve and, and there would be complete chaos. So, so, but, so what we have instead is this provisional accepting of, say, the authority of your professor, say, as an undergraduate, but one way of describing this elevation, you know, as you, as you, I don't know, elevation isn't the right word, but once you reach to a certain point in your studies, uh, and you graduate, uh, and you and you enter the academy, you know, the 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 academy of your peers, you know, in, in a certain academic subject, at some point, you you are allowed to question the the masters. Yeah, you know, at 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 some point. You may be taken. You, you you may not be taken seriously if you say you want to question the theory of relativity or something like that. But there is you have acquired the the grounding and the foundation upon which you can now start looking at even those who are in authority and maybe propose other sorts of of, of ideas. So if that's the case in the realm of science in the realm of education, where we, we're in this cultural context in which unchallengeable authorities have all been dethroned successively, but we come back to the practical reality that there has to be some kind of authority in the world, in, in our world, to keep to, to keep the world in order. And if we have this model in in the educational world of you know there being authorities oh, as you're a student as you're moving along, but then you reach a certain point where where it's possible to question those authorities, it's possible to advance other sorts of fundamental theories about things. Um, is there an analogy to this in the realm of Jerusalem, which is our, our focus for, for today? Um, and what would that analogy be? You know, If we've dethroned the, the power of the clergy in today's world, if we approach with great skepticism any sort of totalizing claim to truth, that we tend to associate with prophets, for example, um, and and we allow ourselves to question the possibility that that these prophets are 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 delivering absolute unchangeable truths uh, in the spiritual realm. But then the next step is well, pragmatically, as a matter of ordering the world, as a matter of navigating our lives personally and collectively, we we look to teachers. We look to educators. We look to you know, physicians to heal our illnesses. You know, we're 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 always looking to those who are farther along the path than we are to help us along because human beings don't start from zero. You know, we we we're we're born into a social matrix in which there are those who have 
already done a lot of the hard work. And it doesn't make sense to reinvent the wheel all the way down with every generation. And so it makes sense that there are established authorities that that we that we're born into in a way. But when it comes to religion, this is a fraught question because everyone has their own religious authority. And these religious authorities, these different clergies, these different dogmas, all seem to be saying different things about how we should live our lives that is now sort of, which was okay in a world which was big enough to accommodate all these different groups in their own continent or in, in their own, you know, part, part, of the, part of the land. But as human beings have grown to finally reach the, the physical limits of our, of our planet, it's no longer possible this old paradigm of just well every every group has its own has its own set of set of of, of beliefs and moves on along its its own trajectory we can no longer do that pragmatically we now have to find ways of getting together and and um and resolving these these conflicts because the because we've reached the physical limits of the planet there is there is one story, uh, one narrative from Enlightenment, or maybe even from from the Platonic and the logical part that, that is about critiques, and I, always be, be be critical. But uh, the critique is also has a dualism, uh, and and the other um, the, the opposite of critique. What would that be? I think it's trust. And in some way or another, we have to trust in something. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we trust in, I would say, is also our way of living. We live according to all the truths or all the what we experience as some kind of meaningfulness. Uh, and I think when we talk about trust or authority, I think we... We, of course, there will always be humans, but there will also be thoughts and even actions. And I think if we, we if we dig down, we will end up uh, experiencing some kind of worldview that is expressed through our action of or way of being. So, uh, what if we are a secular person? We also you will also have some kind of um i say we because i'm i'm as a norwegian i feel myself as a secular <laughs> part of the secular world but but uh but we we, we will all, there will always be uh, some kind of worldview. talk about the atheistic worldview, and that's a very monotheistic way of thinking i, I would say or we could say, say a scientific worldview, and maybe a scientific worldview is not monotheistic Maybe it's actually it it, uh, it depends on a plurality of science, yeah, uh, scientific paradigms, and and I think that about div divinity there is also there, there must be some a trust a trust in what, some kind of authority, but the question is what kind of? What one question I would I would ask, sort of behind the things you said is, what does it mean? to say you're an atheist versus a believer you know what does it mean to say i believe in god for example um and i think the the obvious maybe the the surface level answer which most people might say is 
oh, well, you believe in the existence of a being um, who, which may or may not be proven logically, and there are historical arguments for this being's existence, and I stand on the side of the people who assert that these arguments for that being's existence are true. That's one way of saying what it means to believe in God. I more, I more and more question whether that's a, a coherent way of, of thinking about belief in God, because what is the difference between someone who sits in their chair and says, I assent to or believe in this proposition, and another person who sits in another chair and says, well, I don't assent to that proposition. There's no, there's no practical difference between those two people, except as it is reflected in how they live their lives, which invites us to a different sort of definition of what it means to believe in God, which may scramble our whole thinking about atheists versus believers and so forth. And that would be, we, we worship the thing that we spend all of our time and energy on. Yeah. The thing that we worship, the thing that we believe in, is actually the thing that we center all of our time and energy around. Um, this is a, I'm proposing this as a different definition of what it means to say believe in God. Because according to that definition, everyone's a believer. <laughs> Some are polytheists, though, because they worship money and power and sex or other things that are that are the gods of their own imagination. In that sense, polytheism is still a very live and active issue today. I mean, there aren't a lot of people out there worshiping Thor and worshiping Zeus and so forth. You know, that's historically in the past. But polytheism is still an active issue because people are, are worshiping all sorts of what one would call from a theological perspective, you know, false gods, because these are the things that take up all of their, all of their mental space. So if we redefine worship as that, uh, the thing that you that that is completely engaging you, then just about everyone on, on the planet is is a worshiper of some kind or another. And how we evaluate it then becomes a matter of, well, what what does it produce in the world? You know, what is this doing? You know, if there are atheists who are lovers of humanity and care deeply about the world, uh, and they say, well, I don't believe in God, so we define them as atheists. But they're navigating the world in a way that is deeply informed by the suffering of others, that is deeply informed by trying to make the world a better place, not just as a sales pitch, but as a reality. Um, maybe those people are actually the believers in the way that really counts. And maybe conversely, the people who go around saying, I believe in God and only my God. And if you don't believe in my God, then you're subject to, you know, war or so various forms of oppression to bring you around to the realization of this truth of the one of the one true God that I believe in. Um, looking at the consequence of that belief, which is war and suffering and oppression, maybe that's actually the true kind of atheism, or 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 the or the worshiping the false god. Um, so in that sense, that, that invites us to scramble the categories in our mind. And instead of thinking of the, of the world as divided into a bunch of believers and a bunch of disbelievers, and the believers are all fighting among themselves because they have differences of belief, 
Instead, if we think of the world as divided into those who are doing good in the world and those who are, who are standing and doing nothing or are working actively to make the world a worse place, it's a different way of looking at the whole at at, at the at this question. Um, the funny the funny thing is that 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 would also be like when well, we are back to Plato, I feel because <laughs> this this is of course uh, I think the the this understanding of of uh, okay what is it all about what trust uh, okay yeah. it, it is to 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 have some kind of meaningful. Uh, action yes. to to feel that what you're doing yes. has some kind of uh, yeah, good purpose in some way. Yes, trust and to stand in awe of something. You know, the, there's a statement in the Baha'i writings that the plant prays to the sun. You know, it says, "Oh, God, it it prays." You know, potentially in the way that that a plant does. You know, it says, "Send down your your light." You know, send down the rain so that I can grow. Um, in other in other words, everything is. Is a worshiper in it from a from a certain perspective. Everything believes according to its own degree. We we can't we can't confine the idea of, of worship or belief to the human species. But it's something which is uh, uh, something which which sort of continuously is is a feature of the world, and it has something more to do with orientation, orientation towards the thing that is the source of your being. Uh, it's, not, it's not assent to a set of doctrines or dogmas, but it's an inner orientation in life that is oriented towards awe, and uh, which translates into a kind of a reverence for the sacred. You know, we see this in a lot of the great scientists who are not theistic believers. Uh, Albert Einstein was a great example. Uh, and Nudove, you 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 shared some great quotations from Einstein uh, earlier this week. I could, One of the I, could, that I, hadn't I, could, uh, I could read some of them. Uh, just yes, to, yes. Um, One of them that begins. If you look the at the tree, uh, I think the beginning and the end of what I, I, I sent you was very nice. The, the, the yes. first, and I, for me, this is this is really Einstein listening to logos. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, it, it, yeah. So and the first the first quotation is. I like to experience the universe as one harmonious whole. Every cell has life. Matter, too, has life. It is energy solidified. Mm. I think that's a, this, this idea that everything has life and that we are all. And because this, the, the last quote is, the soul given to each of us is moved by the same living spirit that moves the universe. Mm -hmm. So, so this you. everything is life, and even our soul that is is also part of the universe. We are part of what exists, and if we yeah. if we really could feel this uh, energy around us and how we experience also what Cameron said about the the. the the nature, our our understanding or our experience of being part of nature, mm. I think that also could could help us to to unify everything that is in life Absolutely. in universe. Yeah. Can I share and this maybe... other quote? Oh, go ahead, Karma. No, sorry. Go ahead. No, after you. After you. I'll just share this quote and then pass it back to you. The, the one of the middle quotes from the 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 set that you had shared was: "If we look at this tree outside, whose 
roots search beneath the pavement for water, or a flower which sends its sweet smell to the pollinating bees, or even our own selves and the inner forces that drive us to act, we can see that we all dance to a mysterious tune. And the piper who plays this melody from an inscrutable distance, whatever name we give him, creative force or God, escapes all book knowledge. Uh, it's lovely. That's really beautiful. So it's that's really that's beautiful. beautiful. And it, it, it's yeah. it, one of the one of the and, thing is listen, listening to. I think yeah. that's something we really should try to to do more of. Listen, listen to our soul. Listen to to what is existing. It's a very nice verb to to <laughs> to to live by. I asked GP one of the first things when I got my account uh, GPT chat, and it was I think GPT four, and I asked it, "Give me the quotations from the world's religious scriptures that evoke the maximum degree of feelings of transcendence and at oneness with the universe." Uh, rough translation. It gave me this wonderful list of quotations, and the top list was. Uh, top of the list was from the Psalms. Be silent and know that I am God. Mm -hmm. So there's this, this idea which is found in, in many traditions that the, the way to the recognition of this, of this thing, this transcendent thing for which there are no words, um, is, is through silence, um, which to me implies a kind of receptivity. You know, that we can think of God not, not not so much as a being out there, but rather as an inner current running through things. And I like the, I like the analogy of a current, like a you know, a breeze or or something like that, because it has a direction. You know, it's it has motion. It conveys something like a spirit or a warmth or a, it conveys energy, and it has a direction. So it has those three components. So it, I find the analogy a very powerful one because it also tells us about, about how our actions are not all the same. You know, what we do in our lives, it, it actually matters. And the actions that matter the most are the ones that are aligned with that inner current. And that inner current can be thought of in, in, in our personal lives and in the, in the life of society at this time as the thing which moves in the direction of love and which moves in the direction of unity. That's like, that's the current of the universe. That's where things are trending. And we look into the, the, the hearts of stars and we look into the, to the, you know, innermost grains of the, of the rocks around us. And they all tell that story that the cosmos is evolving from the simple to the complex. And that evolution from the simple to the complex unlocks greater degrees of consciousness. And that's in a way tells us logically why love is a great thing. You know, maybe some things don't need don't need to be explained or rationalized because they're their own ration, they're their own rationale. And maybe love is one of those things. But I would like I'd like to think that. Love also has a deeper rationale, and, and that is that following that inner current and opening ourselves to love for others and for the universe and for our environment brings us into closer association. 
And bringing things into closer association is how higher degrees of consciousness are unlocked. It gets very metaphysical, I suppose. But for me, that's a kind of, um, it provides a kind of arrow, a, a directionality of things that otherwise one would be searching for it. One would maybe looking for, well, just I want, I want to find some authority to tell me what to do. Uh, a, a set of rules that I can follow, so, and I'll just do that. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. So identify the authority that I believe in, and and then follow the rules. And and maybe that's and maybe that's what many people want and need. Others want to feel like there's some deeper justification and deeper logic for what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, and this, I think, idea of this inner current that that trends towards consciousness gives a kind of moral axis to the universe that otherwise might not be there. I think I understand what you said, but one thing I don't really understand is this about complexity. Just one quote, one more quote from uh, Einstein. He says that the basic laws of the universe are simple, but because our senses are limited, we can't grasp them. There is a pattern in creation. So maybe we, 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 some of the patterns we might, we might uh, grasp, but the more simple something is, it seems the more difficult actually to grasp. Yes. So yeah, and, excuse me, could, could I just yes, uh, insert here something that, that to me has to do both with the connection of Athens and Jerusalem and with the educational world? Mm. And it, I think it, and it, it relates to what we've been just discussing. Because if I, if I've understood it correctly, I think the the ancient Greeks had this concept of I think they called it homology. The idea that that there are certain principles that manifest themselves at all levels of existence. And so maybe we could say that uh, the just there is an outer universe and we see certain sort of principles uh, operating in that physical universe there's also an inner universe that follows similar kind of principles and so uh, uh, on that basis in within our educational efforts instead of trying to separate these things you know separate uh, rationality from from existential issues we could bring them together and and help help human beings and help young people to see how their understanding of science and their understanding of the outer universe can help them also to understand their inner universe. Because I think what you were saying, Stephen, about, about the current is very much like, I, I was thinking of like, like you know, they're sort of like inner points of gravity, you know, our lives gravitate uh, towards different things. And so all of these things that we have um, in, in, in physics, we can we can uh, you know even you know the how how atoms come together to form molecules it's it's as you were saying it's it's, it's a form of love isn't it so and, yes. and and unity and harmony so we can see that and i think this is why why perhaps in in um, all sacred writings um, analogies have been used and they have been very clarifying because there is that essential um essential unity between outer and inner universes. Yes. Um, Rumi said, I think, I think this is something we could, we could build more on. 
Absolutely. Yeah. What there's a, a poem by Rumi or a fragment of a poem by Rumi who says, Dost thou consider thyself a puny form when within thee the universe is folded? This is one of the most ancient ideas that that there is this deep correspondence between the inner and the outer. You know, another uh, one of the a quotation from the Quran of Islam says, "We will show them our signs in the in the on the horizons and within their own selves." That these signs of the divine are found sort of equally out out there and within, um, which connects so so beautifully to to you know the two principal ways of of conceiving of of the divine. You know, throughout religious history, um, in the West, it's been more seeing God out there, so to speak, the transcendent God. Whereas, to I mean, maybe to to put it a little bit too to generally, you know, where, whereas the Eastern traditions tend to um, to see the God more imminently, more as the God within, the God that is reflected as that divine spark uh, that is within. But the inner and the outer are correlated to each other. And the ancient Greeks believed this. It's um, one of the ancient hermetic tablets begins with the statement that, that uh, you know, wh whatever is above is like that which is below. Whatever is below is like that which is above. And that this is a kind of miraculous thing. It enables us to perform miracles, understanding that homology, understanding that, that correspondence between inner and outer. Um, and that, I think that's one of the very deep you know, deepest threads in in the in the history of thought is this idea of the divine not being something that can be captured within any single framework. You know, thinking of God out there has its truth, but it's complemented by something which, on the face of it, seems like the opposite, which is the reality of the of the divine spark within. It was Niels Bohr, I think, in 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 the context of quantum physics, who said that you know that superficial superficial truths are ones whose opposite are falsehoods, but the deepest truths are those whose opposites are equally true, and I think that's that goes for these sorts of theological topics even more. You know, whether God is out there or God is within, these are sort of poles of a sphere that uh, that depending on your perspective. You may see it from one way or see it from the other way, but really it's, you know, they're both equally true. Whether we see God as something supernatural or whether we see God acting in and through the natural world is another kind of polarity, which is similar but not identical to this polarity of the, of the, of the inner and the outer. I mean, another one is whether we see God as one or we see God as many, you know, or we whether we see God as beyond one and many entirely. These seem like completely you know it has to be one or the other right you know if you lay these down on a table you, you have to be able to pick up one and say this one is right and the others are wrong but when it comes to the as niels bohr says when it comes to these deepest truths we, you can't trust your intuition of logic mm -hmm. of aristotle's the law of the excluded middle which is that a statement is either true or not true but it can't be both and it can't be neither and this law of the excluded middle, this law of logic, which runs through so much of, of Western-style thinking, is completely blown up by these metaphysical-slash-theological realities, uh, and also, you know, the realities of, of, of deeper realities of, of the physical world as well, in which it, the law of the excluded middle does not apply. This, you know, it's, 
it's equally true to think about God as out there as well as God within. It's equally true to think about God as supernatural, transcendent, as well as acting in and through the material world. It's equally true to think about God as sort of manifested in many different forms as well as manifested in a single monotheistic conception. And when we understand that, it unlocks a degree of human unity that was not possible before. Because before, we are loggerheads and we cannot agree about basic things which we think divide us. These chasms between worldviews that, that divide us. If we can approach them from this perspective of, well, it's kind of a sphere and there are poles on opposite, you know, there, there are ideas on opposite poles, uh, but it's all connected by the meridian lines that, that, that make it into the single sphere then it provides, I think, a, a possibility for, for bridging otherwise unbridgeable cultural and religious divides in the world. So, based, based on what we're saying now, if we had the possibility of changing religious study in school, how would we see the, see the subject? How, how should we, how should we uh, turn it from different religious belief into a question of, on, on if people are good or not. We somehow have to detach and decouple our idea of religion from the idea of dogma. For so many people, religion equals dogma. You know, the, yeah. you have to believe in the Nicene Creed. You have to believe in, you know, these, these utterances of, of my prophet. Uh, and if you're not, then you're irreligious. Then you've you've turned away from the truth. But if we abstract religion from the dogmatic formulations that get attached to it, that end up obscuring the light. There, there's a there's a beautiful play that 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 uh, I was in as a, as a child called the lamp, and and which is a story of of this light that was brought into the world, which people were amazed by and uh, and and reverenced. And so they wanted to do honor to this light. So they built this, this lamp around the light, you know, to protect it and to and to give glory to it. And each sex, each successive generation added more stuff to that lamp until it became entirely covered over in gold plates and, and beautiful ornamentation and jewels and so forth, until after a few generations, you couldn't see the light. All you could see was the structure of the lamp, which was there initially. As a as a protection for the light, as a, as a way to highlight and you know, that 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 light, that flame, but then of course at the end of the play, someone comes along, you know, removes the cover, and you realize all along that what people thought was the light was actually just this human accretion of ideas, of dogmas, of um, of of things that now oh, you have to believe this, otherwise it's not true. You you have to believe that someone can be raised from the dead after three days. Otherwise, you know that is the absolute fundamental. Otherwise, you you don't you, you cannot be accounted a, a, a true follower of this faith. So maybe everybody could play this this play and uh, make this play in in uh, in school. <laughs> but what do you think, Cameron? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I I think that um, sort of one one implication of this beautiful play is that um you know for some reason um both in society at large at school uh, when we are uh, dealing with matters that have to do with not only religion but most sort of i would say social phenomena we often 
try to highlight differences and to uh, establish various sort of varying identities. Mm -hmm. You know, how 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 is the West different from the East? How are, I don't know, uh, how is this country different from that country? How is this culture or language different and so forth? And and um, so in, in this kind of um, uh, analytical um, comparative perspective, we lose sight of the fundamental underlying unities between things. And I think this is something that we should we should, um, I think what we were um, discussing earlier on also, you know, realizing the, the underlying oneness and unity of existence at all levels, then I think we should, uh, you know, in the study of religions also, try to find that, that essential, um, those essential points of unity, because there are many. And those who have been seeking those have found lots of them. Uh, and I think, if if we took that kind of an approach, then we would find that actually these um, these um, dogmatic differences, uh, even even though sometimes they seem very fundamental, are are, are secondary, and it's possible to to find a, a unifying approach that that uh, all humans can. Mm all human describe to whether whatever background you know whether whatever belief background they come from i think that's also why i often in because there's many people talking about complexities and i i i, I sometimes wonder if they I, I think we should try to focus a little bit more about what is actually essential what mm. is what is the most meaningful or the most uh, of value what what should we take care of? What should we trust in? Uh, instead of thinking that everything is so complex and everything is different and everything is also in in the religious study, I think we, there's too much focus on what what is the difference between all the religi religions and not what actually mm -hmm. are similar. It's and such a such a hot button topic in the United States. And I can I can see it from both sides. On the one on the one hand, there is a there is a legitimate need to acknowledge that which has historically been unacknowledged. There's a legitimate need to affirm the identities of groups which historically have not had those identities confirmed. At mm. the same time, in this in the very long run, I I imagine that an emphasis more on the on the unifying things behind cultures behind religions behind the various tribes of humanity is ultimately the right thing to focus on but it's such a complicated thing and maybe in the in the in the midterm we need to we need to look at appreciate celebrate highlight affirm those differences it looks like, and that can be taken to an extreme with the kind of identity and politics that, that have become so polarizing in the United States. And to stand on the other side of that and say, oh, we should just look at, at, at how, we're, how we're, we're all one behind that can be mistaken as going over to the other side. You know, it can be mistaken as, as moving counter to those progressive forces, which seem to be moving more in the direction of highlighting and acknowledging and affirming identity in a, in, in a 
in the kind of try in the in various tribal senses. And maybe it's possible to to see this as a stage in in a path, you know, that it, in, in this initial stage in the path towards a broader and deeper kind of unity, which is not a unity in uniformity, but a unity that recognizes and, and acknowledges and celebrates diversity. We first have to identify what that diversity is and be, be clear on, on what it is and be clear that it's all accepted and, and, and to have a very inclusive stance about different life paths. Um, and then having done that, we can then we can then find and, and focus on that on that unity behind it. I don't know. It's such a it's such a complicated and, and, and fraught social it question today. It, it is. Yeah, uh, but, um, one of the biggest problem that in, in my view, one of the biggest problem in, in this understand this, uh, we should all understand each other is uh, when I feel that somebody is being too dogmatic and actually have thoughts that is, I would say, violent uh, towards Earth or towards humanity. And and then I, I, I can't accept it. Mm. And and the thing is that we have we have to we have to differ between what is uh, the origin of something and what is the value or the validity of a statement. Mm -hmm. of or action or an action so so we have we have to and and we we i think the originality or, or the origin of something we we should never discuss i i think that's that would always be something we should tolerate and accept but mm -hmm. we shouldn't always accept uh, claims statements and actions that is something we should uh, i think we we, we have to uh, actually uh, prevent some of them Cameron. Yeah, but I mean, I was, yeah, I, I agree with you. But but I, I think that you know when when it comes to this matter of unity and diversity, I think I don't know. It, it may be that because I'm one of those so-called third culture kids, you know, a, a person who has grown up um, in 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 multiple cultural settings. It's it comes quite sort of natural to you to to realize that. That different cultures and different groups of people with different identities have developed different aspects of our common humanity, and um, actually, you know, uh, Dante Alighieri, I, 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 I find this extremely beautiful. His explanation of why there are so many people in the world and they're so different, he said it's because because the human potential is something so great that no one human being can manifest it all. And that's why God has created so many human beings. And, and so each human being can, can manifest some aspects of our common humanity. And in this, in that sense, of course, we are sort of like mirrors in, to each other, that we can we can find further aspects of our own humanity in our fellow human beings. And I think in, if, you, if you look at it in that way, then, then I think uh, diversity becomes actually a unifying uh, factor and we find that that um, these different aspects are all aspects of our common humanity and that we can learn more about, about that humanity which is something extremely great and deep uh, and multifaceted by um, acknowledging the areas within which different people with different identities have have, have developed something along those lines yeah. 
Yeah. I will, uh, even even experience that if we if we should if we really should take care of plurality, we we need to we need to really discuss or to keep a logical discussion alive, an intersubjective discussion alive on these abstract questions that we are questioning in Athens and Jerusalem. I think that's that's extremely important. If if we if we if we lose sight of all these abstract discussions, then all plural, plurality will will just be blurring. It was just it will fade in in, in non direction. It would just be one I think Hannah Arendt he, she says something about this that if we if we remove the, the, the difference between uh, truth and false, we also remove the possibility of plurality. We we mm. then then we end up in totalitarianism, actually. Okay, that's I think that's that's a good note for continuing next time, right? Yeah, uh, so, yeah. That's that's that. That was a wonderful <laughs> conclusion to all of this. So I should, we should say uh, thank you. Maybe the listener have some ideas on uh, how we should change the religious study based on our conversation or on thoughts you have. Uh, so don't be shy to uh, if you have something to comments on the podcast, just uh, write on our web page. So thanks for the for listening. Great. You have been listening to Athens and Jerusalem, created by Cameron Namdar, Stephen Phelps, and Knut Ovese. Nora Julist broadcast voice and technical support. Music is pieces of Advat Grieg's morning mood. The voices in the intro are Victor Frankel, interviewed with Robert Oppenheimer and Pope John Paul II. Thank you for listening and please check out another episode.